We're going to get going. We're continuing this morning to look at the book of Exodus, second book of the Old Testament, where we see the history of God's people beginning to form, God's people as the nation of Israel, where they come from, how God formed them, where he brought them from, and how he wants them to live. Last week, if you weren't here, we saw that uh, God's people, Israel, God's family, was sent out of the land of Egypt, literally pushed out because God sent the tenth plague upon the land. All of the firstborn of Egypt died. Um, And as Israel was leaving, uh, we saw that there was a a huge difference to them than what they expected. They were leaving in the middle of the night. It was super fast. They had to take the bread before it had even risen. They were sent with the gold and silver of Egypt. There was still blood fresh on the door frames from the lamb that they had killed. There were people still crying, Egyptians crying over the loss of their firstborn. And they were leaving Egypt forever. And this morning, God starts to talk to his family about how they should behave as his family. And he begins by talking to them about what it looks like to remember and commemorate what they had just been through. As we hear the passage read this morning, I want to ask you this. How would you remember and commemorate such a life-altering shock to your senses? What would you do? How would you remember it? And does that line up with what we see in the passage this morning? Let's give ear to the reading of God's word. A reading from Exodus 12 and 13. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner a hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leavened bread shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hands or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Well, God, we come again this morning to your word, and we ask that you would be with us. Send your spirit to us to help us understand how these words written so long ago speak to us, inform us about who you are and how you operate and how you draw us into relationship with yourself. Help us to see and experience your love this morning. I pray that my words would fall to the floor and only your words remain. 
I pray this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Amen. Growing up, my older brother and I carpooled uh, with the family that lived across the street. Uh, Their last name was Love. I've mentioned them before probably in a sermon. They functioned like cousins to us. We didn't have first cousins. Uh, They had a son and a daughter that were about our same ages. And so in elementary and middle and high school, we all rode to school together. And in elementary school, I remember my family had a blue Chrysler minivan, one of the old ones, looked like a couple boxes smashed together on wheels. Uh, The Loves had a red Dodge Caravan, same thing, just red. Uh, And in elementary school, we would walk out of our classroom at the end of the day and walk to the carpool loop, and you'd have to wait with your class until you saw your car pull into the loop, and then you could go get in it. Well, the four of us would converge on either the red van or the blue van. Because we wanted to be first in, right? The first kid in the car got to slide across the bench seat in the middle and sit right behind the driver. Easiest to get into, most comfortable, most space. The second and the third kid had to fight over who would sit next to them on the middle bench seat or be smushed into the back, into the back bench where there's no room, no leg room at all. Super, super tight. Being the youngest of the four, I was almost always in the back corner of the smushed seat, Until one glorious day in second grade, I saw the red van pull into the loop, and it stopped right in front of where I was sitting. I didn't have to converge anywhere. I ran straight to the car, threw open the sliding door, jumped in, buckled up, and turned to gloat when I realized that's not my brother waiting to get in this car. And I looked into the driver's seat, and I thought, that's not my mom driving this car, and that's not Mrs. Love, and this is not the van I'm supposed to be in. I totally forgot that it was acceptable for more than one family in Orlando, Florida to own a red van. Um, Wasn't my family. It was a completely different family. Looked similar on the outside, but definitely different on the inside. Completely embarrassing. God in our passage has carved out his own family, taken them out of Egypt, saved them from the hands of their would-be murderers. And now, for the third time in as many chapters, God, through Moses, tells the people how they should live and remember what he has done to save them. God is starting to set his people apart, to make his family unique, make them separate from all the other peoples around. He is beginning to form their habits and their patterns and their attitudes for the family at an early stage. Now this is important for us because those who follow Jesus are part of the same family in a later stage. And as much as the family has changed over time, many of the same patterns and habits and attitudes are the same. Now, in this passage, as I was reading and preparing it, I wrote a great sermon that was like 45 minutes long and realized this is two sermons in one. And so this morning, we're going to just talk about what it means to be a part of God's family. What God talks to us about. And, t- and next week we're going to look at what it means to consecrate the firstborn. And I think it's important for us to actually focus on what God expects from his family, what he's calling his family into, because it's easy for us to forget whose family we're in. It's easy for us to beget what it, forget what it means to become part of the family and, and what it means for us to act as a family. God says here that we should grow the family We should reunite the family, and we should teach the family. Now, you're right. Those commands are given to Israel, God's family, and they all center around the Passover and remembering the Passover and participating in the Passover year after year, but they're still applicable to God's family today. Grow the family, reunite the family, 
and teach the family. So let's start by looking at where God says that we should grow the family. And before we see it in our passage, it's helpful to remember how this family started. In Genesis, God came to one man, Abraham, and he said, I will bless you with many descendants. You'll be the father of a giant nation. You'll have many sons. You'll be the head of a family, my family. I will be your God and the God of your children, and I will bless them and bless the world through them. Those same promises were passed on from Abraham to Abraham's son Isaac to Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of those sons, Joseph, received those promises, moved the family to Egypt in order to save them from a famine. And while they were in Egypt, the family continued to grow for 400 years. And last week we saw that when this family leaves Egypt, they leave as a legion, like an army. That's how big God's family was. But as we saw last week, it wasn't just the ethnic Hebrews that left Egypt. It said, the Bible told us that a mixed multitude went with them. These were people from all different nationalities, all different backgrounds. They saw this exodus as an opportunity for them to leave as well. And so, of course, God in some way needed to make a distinction between those who were in his family and those who were out of his family, those who saw this as just their opportunity to leave. However, when we look at the passage, it's not necessarily the distinction we expect or assume God to make. The very beginning of this passage, as Moses sets up regulations for the Passover year after year, he does so by saying who can participate and who can't participate. And wouldn't you know it, he starts out negatively. Verse 43, this is the statute of the Passover, no foreigner shall eat of it. I don't know about you, but even just reading that, something uh, goes off in my brain, in my heart. It confirms all the things that we hear our culture tell us about how exclusive God is. It confirms everything that I've felt at times about how exclusive God is. God only welcomes certain people from a certain background with a certain track record. And if you don't fit in that line, God just doesn't welcome you seems like that's what he's saying here. But let's continue. Verse 44, But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. Oh, hmm. Slaves are given family status. Interesting. But there's more than that. Verse 48, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. Now that word stranger and sojourn put together, it's talking about people who are not ethnically Hebrew who have decided to live their lives among the people of Israel, to camp where they camp, to travel where they travel. People who are part of the group but aren't necessarily ethnically in line, a descendant of Abraham. And here, God has provided a way for those sojourners and slaves who are brought into the people of Israel to become part of Israel. Not just Israel, but become part of God's family. God, through these regulations, is actually mandating that Israel be inclusive rather than exclusive. That's helpful because as we know throughout the rest of the Bible, Israel's temptation is going to be excluding all non-Jews from the benefits of being God's people. They're going to look at the blessing of their lives and say, it's because of who we are, of who we come from. We are the descendants of Abraham. 
instead of saying, God chose to show us favor. The same is true for us. We love the idea of a meritocracy. We look at our lives, we look at the comforts we have, the blessings we have, the good times, vacations, all the good things in our life, and we instantly think it comes from us. It's maybe because of who I am, where I come from, where I work, where I went to school, the benefits that I have, the life that I leave. It's because of how I work and what I've earned. That's what we think internally. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. But what happens is, as we start to to succumb to that idea and attitude of entitlement, we start to look at the world differently and react to people differently. We start to judge them and maybe even exclude them based on their appearance. Maybe how they look, the color of their skin, possibly. Or maybe it's the level of their education or their behavior. Maybe we judge people or exclude them based on their political affiliation or their views or the depth of their theological insight, right? We start to believe that God's people, God's favor, look and act and behave and come from stock like me. And if you don't fit that mold, you probably don't have God's favor. Now, you might not think this. You might not say it out loud. Maybe you don't know that you think this. But our sinful entitlement leads us to judge and exclude others. I was convicted of this just the other day. Over the past month and a half, we've ordered food from Mendocino Farms uh, twice for two small church events that we've had at our house. And both times, the same delivery person came to our house to deliver the food and help set it up, Mariana. The first time that she came, I wasn't there. She talked to Nicole and found out that we were hosting a church event and that we were feeding some people, and she was so excited to be there and to help us serve food. I was there for the second event this past week, and she showed up and said, Oh, I remember you. You work for the church, and you're having people over for a church event. And instantly, something snapped in my head. She knows that we're part of a church. I I need to be kind. I need to be loving to her. I need to be generous to her. There's nothing wrong with that, let me say. But as I thought about it, I was convicted over the fact that I thought that way. I decided to behave that way because I assumed that I had something, I was part of something that she wasn't or she didn't have. I don't know whether it was the job that she had, whether it was her gender, her ethnicity. I'm not sure exactly what caused me to assume that I had something and belonged to something that she didn't, but my entitlement kicked in and mentally I excluded her. That's how this works. It's so subtle. It creeps in. And that's how our sin works. And so God is telling Israel, anyone from any nation, tribe, or tongue can come to me, is welcomed by me, may become part of the family, and, as he talks about here, receive the family sign, which is circumcision for Israel. The same is true for God's family today. Anybody from any background, any nation, Any language, any skin color is welcomed by God into the family and receives the family sign, which is baptism. And so this morning, if you're sitting here and and you haven't been baptized, you've been hanging around Jesus for a while and and his people, and you think, you know what? This This is true. Jesus does what he says he is going to do, and you want to commit your life to him and become part of his family, one of our elders would love to talk to you. We'd love to see you baptized up here because God welcomes everyone into his family. But here's the thing. It's, it's not just a one-and-done situation. 
You don't just receive the sign, get baptized, and say, okay, now I'm part of the family, and I can go live the rest of my life because i got stuff to do. God says that the family should gather together regularly. God tells Israel that they should reunite the family over and over again. Reunite the family. Now, the night that Israel left Egypt, God made them have a family meal. Okay, he told them that God, that God told Israel that he was going to free them from Egypt by sending the 10th plague. He would kill off the firstborn of the land, both man and animals. But if they killed a lamb and they smeared its blood on the door frame of their house, the plague would pass over them. Right? And instead of just throwing away the dead animal, God said, get together and eat the sacrifice. This animal had to die for you. You should eat it as a family meal. Now, here's the key. It wasn't just one lamb per household. If you could not afford a lamb for your household or your, your family was too small to eat an entire lamb, you could get together with your neighbors and the family next door and the family on the other side, up to 100 people, and you would eat the meal together. One big family. And as the people are leaving Egypt, God says to them, that was pretty cool. You're going to do that every year. You're going to gather together and have the same meal year after year. Same idea. Your family alone or a big family all together. This is what verse 46 and 47 is talking about. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Each year, everyone in Israel was to celebrate the Passover by having a family meal together. God says, don't separate yourself. Like, don't agree with your neighbors, hey, we're going to buy this lamb, and and we'll take one of the legs and and one of the shoulders, and you guys can have one of the legs, and we'll bring it over after we roast it, right, like a, a block party. He says, get together in your houses with your neighbors. Eat the animal, the sacrificial animal, together. This statement about the breaking of the bones might be confusing to us, but scholars agree, including Jewish scholars, that this is all about the unity of the sacrifice bringing the unity of the people, right? So we don't tear the sacrificial animal apart, and it brings us together. The one animal died for the whole house. Maybe that was three family units, maybe it was ten, but one animal died for the whole house. If you were sitting there eating, it was because one animal died for you, and for the person next to you, and from the person across from you. So as you ate the meat of the sacrificial animal, you were more united to what had happened in the past when the plague passed over the people in Egypt. Right? I think a, a good correlation to this is Thanksgiving. Right, our Thanksgiving is a unique celebration for us, a unique holiday. Right? Most of our holidays center around food, which is a great thing. Uh, but they all have food and something else, right? Christmas, we have Christmas dinner and presents. What did I get? Right? Easter, we have Easter lunch or brunch and Easter baskets. What kind of candy did I get? Birthdays come with cake and presents. What did I get? It's all about me. But Thanksgiving, right, it's about turkey and what are you thankful for? You focus outward, right? Maybe you did this growing up. I remember sitting in school and having to share with everybody what we were thankful for. 
And there's some video that I've seen, a, a family memory, it's either from my family or someone we're close to, where all these kindergartners are standing around and they're singing this thankful song. And I'm thankful for, and then a kid, uh, one student would go. Then they'd sing it again and another student would go and, and so on and so forth. And the camera just kind of pans, you know, one to the next. And most kindergartners say the same thing. I'm thankful for my mommy or my family, right? And in this video, in this moment of pure honesty, it's I'm thankful for my mommy. I'm thankful for my family. And then the student, I'm thankful for shrimp. (laughs) I love it. I love it, right? Thanksgiving is the only holiday really that we have that we ask you to look outside yourself, to something that you've received, right? Because that's what originally happened at the original Thanksgiving, right? In 1621, the Western Europeans were celebrating because they were thankful that they were alive. The winter of 1620 was terrible. And if the Native Americans of the Wampanoag tribe had not served them and taken care of them and shown them how to farm, they would all be dead. And so the first Thanksgiving was about being thankful. And so we're thankful too. But here's the other thing. If you go one step deeper, we're thankful, not just because that's the pattern that we follow, but we're also thankful because most of us probably would not be here had that selfless action of the Native American tribe not taken place. This celebration of Thanksgiving not only has us follow a pattern, but it draws us back to the original event. The same is true for Passover, Every time that God's family gets together, they are to be united around the shared experience of being saved. For Israel, it was being saved from Egypt by the tenth plague passing over them because of the blood of the Lamb. For us, God's family today, it's about being saved from our sin, from judgment and death passing over us because of the blood of Jesus. That's what happens Every time we gather together, we are united to each other by God's grace and mercy to us. We are united as we come to the Lord's Supper. He gave his body for us. His blood causes judgment to pass over us. And so we gather together and we consume his body together as a family. First, you receive the family sign. Then you partake of the family meal. God tells us, grow the family, reunite the family, gather around the sacrifice that it costs for you to be saved, especially when there's new folks around, right? As your family grows, new people are there, you're going to be taking the family meal. And as we know, when families get together and there are new people around, the same old stories come out, don't they? Right? God says, gather the, grow the family, reunite the family, and teach the family. Twice in this passage, and in multiple other places when God institutes the commemoration of the Passover, God says, at some point your kids are going to go, what the heck is this? And you're supposed to teach them about why you participate in the Passover year after year. He says so in verse 8 of chapter 13, but I think that the later explanation, starting in verse 14, helps us understand the depth God wants us to go to. Verse 14 And when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. 
For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. God says, when it comes to teaching the family, be specific. Don't just say, God saved us from Egypt. Tell your kids the problem. We were slaves in Egypt. Tell your kids God's solution. He brought us out with a strong arm. Tell your kids what it cost for God to save you. He killed the firstborn of Egypt. Repeating this story over and over again as the sacrifice lays in front of you breeds familiarity. People start to understand, okay, we did this the last couple of years. I'm starting to get this. And familiarity brings teaching opportunities. It's really important for us to know how and why God has saved us. And it's important for us to talk to people who are new to the the community about how and why God has saved us. Now, I'm not saying that this is just for people with kids, that this, this encouragement of God to be part of his family and teach your children is just about families with kids. Remember how this celebration was taking place. It was taking place often as one big, large family, up to 100 people. Israelites who had no children were sitting down with Israelites who had children, and they were all grouped together as one family. And the family needs to be taught how you've been saved, what you've been saved from, and what it costs God to save you. Both of my grandfathers served in World War II, but neither of them liked to talk about it. My maternal grandfather father did not really like to talk at all. He was an incredibly cold person. And all I know about his service in the, in the war has to do with the fact that his left arm was basically immobile from the elbow down. My mom or grandmother at different points told me uh, he was injured in the war. He was fighting in Belgium and he was hit with a piece of shrapnel, severed most of the tendons and, and some of the nerves in his arm. He was uh, airlifted out a couple days before the Battle of the Bulge. I, I learned all this, but it didn't help me understand why my grandfather was so cold, why he didn't want to talk about that or, or anything, really. Once I saw the HBO miniseries Band of Brothers, I understood a little bit more. I understood about what he went through. His story was probably similar to a lot of these men I was seeing portrayed on TV. And then to watch episode 6, which is titled Bastone, and has a, a, a reenactment of the Battle of the Bulge, to realize that my grandfather spent so much time with these men and was airlifted out days before most of them were probably killed. I understood the heartbreak, the disappointment, the broken life that my grandfather had. By seeing and understanding the story of what he went through and what he didn't go through, I began to understand him better. The family of God needs to know what you've been through. We need your story, what you've experienced, how God has saved you, and from what God has saved you. In the New Testament, it's called witnessing. The apostles and those who followed Jesus were called to proclaim what they had seen and experienced. Jesus died. Jesus was in the tomb. And then he rose again. They were called to witness to the people around them in order to bring those people into the family. This becomes like a never-ending cycle. 
grow the family, reunite the family around the sacrifice, teach the family, which in turn grows the family. We're called to do the same thing as the apostles and the same thing as Israel. Witness, teach the family. And again, it's not just to people who have children. It's to all of us. All of God's family are needed to raise a godly family. Let me say that again. All of God's family are needed to raise a godly family. But more than that, myself as a child of God, I will never not need to learn more about God's grace and mercy. All of us continue to need to learn more about God's grace and mercy. And so I need your story. I need to hear your story so that I can learn more about you and more about him. The same is true for you. You need the stories of people around you. You're called to teach and you're called to learn. And the amazing thing at Grace is we actually have two great opportunities that can help you do those things. The first is help teach some of the children of this church. You can volunteer to be a teacher or a teacher's aide or an assistant up in our Grace Kids, whether it's preschool or elementary school. And you might be thinking to yourself, wait, I'm not really a good teacher. It's okay, we will train you. The second thing is, I would encourage you to go to Stories of Grace. It's an opportunity we have coming up on Sunday, the 2nd of June, to hear about how God has worked and is working in the lives of the people around you, this local institution of God's family. Because I can guarantee you, you will learn something about God that you might not have known. Now, it's at this point that I think it's rather easy for us to try and dismiss our role in this whole family business. Well, you might say, I look at getting involved, at witnessing, at teaching, at engaging more, at gathering together, at growing, all that kind of stuff, and it just seems like a lot. It seems like a lot of time. I'm sure it's going to get a little bit messy, and to be honest, I don't really like a lot of these people that much. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I don't have anything to offer. I don't have a great story. I don't have any teaching experience. I don't really desire to teach. Uh, Maybe you're even thinking, I'm not part of God's family, so I don't belong here. The good news of the gospel is none of us belong here. None of us have anything to offer. None of us are really all that likable. But God draws us together anyway. He unites us together around him He makes us a family, his family. God gives us a story to tell. God in us makes us likable. God in us gives us all something to offer. This morning, if you're sitting here and you're trusting and following Jesus, the reason that you have any right to call yourself a son or daughter is because God has shown you favor. Which means if you're not following Jesus and you want to know how to become part of the family, it's all about proclaiming Jesus to be your brother who died for you. The question becomes, what does it look like to grow the family, to reunite the family, to teach the family? And I think that the answer is we have to celebrate Passover daily. We have to be able to talk about what we've been saved from and how we've been saved, and who saved us. And not in a dreary, uh, cold, repetitive way. This was a celebration. This was a feast 
what would it look like for us to celebrate the things that we've been saved from? And not just in word or in title, but actually celebrate, to get together and to celebrate the fact that on this day or that day, God drew you out of darkness and into light. God took you from isolation and brought you into a family. What would it look like for you to celebrate that and to invite people into that celebration who might not know God? to invite them in, to teach them about what God has done for you, to bear witness to God's power in your life. Maybe, just maybe, that's how God is calling us to grow his family, to be united around the sacrifice, to teach his family. Let's pray. God, we come before you thankful um, that you have called us together, called us to yourself We ask that you would remind us that it is not because of anything in us or who we are or what we've done. Remind us that your favor has rested upon us because you chose to have it rest upon us. That this is all a gift from you, your grace, your mercy. We've not earned it. You've given it freely. Help us to remember that and to receive it so that we might extend it to others. To tell others about who you are and what you've done for us. To invite them to come and to see this amazing God who would willingly become man, live a perfect life, and die a sinner's death, only to rise again, to defeat sin and death, and to welcome us home. We thank you that that is the end for those who trust in your Son, a seat at the family table for a celebration that will never end, where we will be gathered together as your family, feasting, singing, and celebrating forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen.